let's check for insulin resistance. And if it is insulin resistance, there's no drug on the planet that can match even half, even a fraction of what lifestyle can change. Insulin resistance and all those diseases that come from it are, are caused by diet and they can be cured by diet. And that was our incredible guest for today, Dr. Benjamin Bickman. He's just released an incredible book called Why We Get Sick. And it explains using insulin resistance as the main factor, how so many chronic illnesses can be improved through our diet. It's a great conversation that we have. It's pretty in depth at some points around energy. And I ask some silly questions. But at the same time, the underlying message will ring true through the entire conversation. So we hope you really enjoy this. And I really encourage you to go out and get the book so that you can learn more about health and so that you can then encourage other people you know to learn about their health and maybe offer some tips around diet, around insulin resistance that could help them. So enjoy this conversation and please pass it on. Ben Bickman, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. Um, I've been listening to you for quite a while. Uh, you got into the low-carb world through a conference a few years ago, and that was sort of before that you didn't really – You maybe what a lot of people think now of low-carb is that, oh, we just sit around talking about you know, why carbs are bad. But really it's much more about learning how the body works and your field of expertise in, in insulin and lipids is perfect for that, for that fit. And so tell us about your, your start into that low carb conference and, and why it fits so well. Yeah, it was, uh, thanks, uh, Pete. Hey, thanks for the invitation. Uh, it really is a, a treat to be able to speak with you about all this stuff, everything, human metabolism. Yes, yeah, so it was a it was a bit of a fun transition for me to take a step out of the lab, so to speak, into into the public, and so that was a, I think it's four years ago at this point uh, where the organizers of Low Carb Denver or the the Low Carb event in Colorado, and, and one of them is Rod Taylor, a very a very respected um, physician in Australia. Uh, so it's sort of all wrapped under the low carb down under, and I've never actually given a low carb talk down under, uh, but but Denver qualified in this case. Yeah, they uh, we we got connected because I just started doing research into the effects of insulin and ketones on the way the body uh, on the on, on fat cell uh, behavior, if you will, how the fat cells um, well act or, or function within the body because insulin and ketones have contrasting and very interesting effects. And, and we, can, we can get into that later if you'd like. But that was the beginning um, of, of my, my, my steps into the public space of low carb. And it is very gratifying, Pete, I'll tell you, because one of my frustrations being a, a metabolism scientist is we learn so much and, and we have no way of sharing that with with other people. You know, it just sort of stays in the lab. And we publish a paper, and then a handful of other scientists read the paper. And I was just kind of pushing against that those constraints, and being able to share some of these findings through social media and through these talks that I get to do that end up getting onto YouTube. It really was a very gratifying way to share some of what. 
I know and what I considered valuable to anyone wanting to learn more about human metabolism. Uh, so it, it has been a nice way uh, to basically spread some of the science, if you will. Yeah, and about some of those things you mentioned, the we'll talk about that impact of ketones on different types of fat. So that's we'll just jump in right there. Um, mm-hmm. Brown, white fat, babies, adults. Um, tell us all about how fat works and and what's going on. Yeah. So you're touching. You mentioned some very relevant. Uh, a good way to to bring this up. So there are there are multiple ways of classifying human fat tissue or adipose tissue. Uh, and one way to define it is based on how the fat cells behave. And we could we could split that up into two very um, opposing uh, behaviors. On one hand, we have fat tissue that acts like we think it should, which it which is it stores energy. So it's an energy storage depot. It's pulling in energy and just holding on to it for later use. That is white fat. And indeed, if we pull it from the body, it is very white because the fat is white and the fat cells are almost totally filled with just a big blob of fat in them. In contrast, we have a different type of fat called brown fat, and it's brown because it has so much mitochondria. And people may remember hearing about your listeners undoubtedly are more familiar with mitochondria than the average individual, but the mitochondria are the part of the cell, the parts of the cell that will pull in energy, uh, uh, calorie uh, substrate like, like glucose and fat, and then break it down uh, for energy to be used by the, by the cell. So the, the brown fat, each of these little fat cells have a lot of mitochondria, so they look more red, reddish brown, which is kind of the color of the mitochondria. And they, uh, th- this higher amount of mitochondria is unique, even beyond, it's more unique beyond just having more mitochondria because these mitochondria actually are what's called uncoupled. So typically, um, I'm almost getting a little too deep, but I'm gonna just run with it, Pete. All right, I'm gonna tell just us, run with it. Tell us about the babies and that yeah, kind of yeah, keeping, yeah. keeping warm and yeah. Right, right. So so these these mitochondria in the brown fat just make a lot of heat. So they waste energy. And that means it's it's thermogenic or it makes heat because if you're wasting energy, well, heat is the way of heat is just a, a main feature of wasted energy, or it is evidence of wasted energy. So when human babies are born, they're very chubby. And, and in fact, that's very likely to do with us having very expensive brains. And so they have a lot of fat that can be metabolized into ketones to feed the brain, but that's beside the point. But babies have a lot of brown fat. So I've noticed this with my own children. When you pull a little baby out of the bath, when they're babies, they won't shiver. They don't need to shiver. They have a lot of brown fat. So much of their fat is brown fat relatively speaking. And as we start to grow older, that we lose that brown fat. And as adults, we typically just have a little bit of brown fat up in our thoracic cavity. And that could be very practical because the brown fat can warm the blood as it's going up to the brain. So if we're really cold and we're shivering, the shivering really helps keep our body warm because the muscles are making heat, but there's no shivering in the head. And so we can send warm blood up to the brain. Nevertheless, back to the relevance of ketones here, Mm. we have published a paper previously finding that insulin will make fat cell uh, mitochondrial activity slow down. 
So insulin will suppress this wasting of energy. So it makes the fat cells, even in brown fat, in fact, most especially in brown fat, it makes these fat cells want to hold on to more energy. It's, it, it depresses the metabolic rate. That was a paper we published uh, two years ago. The paper I'm hoping will get published this year, and we have evidence in humans, is that ketones will accelerate fat cell metabolism. So you can take white fat cells and they start to behave like brown fat cells. The metabolic rate increases by about two or three times and they start wasting energy. And that now to the athlete though, Pete, mm. it's relevant because that doesn't happen at muscles. Ketones do not create that wasting at muscles. Ketones maintain the muscle can be exposed to ketones, be pulling in ketones and be working as efficiently as ever. But the fat cell becomes less efficient at, at using energy. It starts wasting it. Now, metabolically speaking, that's a good thing. Wasting energy means that if you're, you know, you have a little more calorie in you, either stored or consumed, it'll help you go through that. You'll burn it a little better or faster because you're wasting this energy. Yeah. Um, a few points that are questions about so. But the bad type of fat, I guess it's not bad fat if it's if it's just subcutaneous fat. That's a natural evolutionary store energy, and that is good for us, right? We need that for, for, through times of fasting. But when does fat become bad for us? In it, when yeah. is that only when it's around our organs, when it's visceral? Yeah, good question. Um, no, no, it, it, subcutaneous fat can also reach a point. Of, of, being, of being harmful. In fact, even beyond um, being an energy storage, subcutaneous fat is one of the main signals. It's very unappreciated, but I just have to mention it. It's one of the main signals telling the body um, to, to, be, to be fertile, uh, to reproduce. Fat cells create this hormone called leptin. In the subcutaneous fat cells make this more than, than visceral or deeper fat cells. Uh, the, so leptin will go to the brain and will actually tell the brain it will send a signal down to the gonads, the testes or the ovaries, and in, uh, allow the body to be reproductive or to enable reproductive capacities. And that's one of the reasons why if you have, a, especially a girl, a, a female reproduction is more sensitive to leptin than, than male reproduction. But if you have a little girl who doesn't have enough fat cells, there's not enough leptin going to the brain. And then the brain won't send a signal to the ovaries to induce ovulation, and so she won't ovulate. In contrast, if you have a little girl who has too much fat cells, there's too much leptin, there's too much signal to the ovaries, and then you'll have a little girl going through puberty much earlier than she would have otherwise. So one of the main causes of what's called precocious puberty is having too much body fat and then too much leptin. But anyway, back to your question. With subcutaneous fat, um, visceral fat is more pathogenic. It leaks more fatty acids and it leaks more inflammatory proteins called cytokines, you know, cell for cell. But if you have subcutaneous fat that is that is growing in a bad way, it also becomes problematic. And by that I mean, if if there is ample calories. And, and, and sufficient insulin to tell fat tissue to grow, because both of these are, are needed, then fat, fat tissue, you know, the entirety of the subcutaneous fat, and that's the fat that we can pinch and jiggle, it can grow through two different mechanisms. 
One mechanism is that the fat cells multiply. So one fat cell becomes two and then four, et cetera. That's hyperplasia. That's a healthy way to get fat. It seems kind of like a paradox. But if someone has fat cells that can continue to divide, they, they maintain a very good insulin sensitivity. And, and so you have this interesting situation where the person maintains kind of pretty good health, metabolically speaking, and yet they can become incredibly obese. And, and, and so, you know, it's this bit of a paradox. Does that In depend contra- what they're eating depend on how the fat cells Yeah, divide? yeah. So it's two things. Uh, it depends partly on diet, including... Um, refined seed oils that will that will twist it from the healthy growth into the sick growth, and it depends on genetics. Some people just genetically have fats. You will can get lots of fat cells or fewer fat cells. And the fewer fat cells brings me to the other way of getting fat, and that is when the number of fat cells is pretty capped, but the individual fat cells get big, and so you have this hypertrophy or this hypertrophic fat cell growth that is sick fat. And so it's interesting because the person will have a limit to how fat they can get. You know, they'll, they'll get chubby, chubby, and then they're done at just kind of moderately chubby. And yet metabolically speaking, they're a wreck. It, that fat is more harmful. And different ethnicities, evidence of just how there is a genetic component to this, different ethnicities may be more or less inclined to one of these uh, or the other. In particular, I did my postdoctoral fellowship work in Singapore, which is a country that my family and I just love. It's interesting to note the disparity between the residents in Singapore. So the, the Europeans um, that live in Singapore or anyone of your European descent can tend to get much fatter than someone who is, say, Asian. So if you take a Chinese Singaporean or a Chinese American, compare that to a European American, the Chinese ethnicity will start to get a little chubby and then start to suffer the consequences of that due to this hypertrophic growth, as opposed to the European ethnicity will tend to have, tend to, not always, will tend to have a little more hyperplastic growth so they can get a little fatter and stay healthier. And the different storage pathways, I'm really interested in, and there's a few different layers to this, is obviously... um, the big argument, a calorie is not a calorie and, and that sort of process. So if we're having carbohydrates and high sugar foods and, and, and spiking our blood sugar and our insulin, that ends up being stored fat if we have excess um, energy coming in. But if we were just having excess energy just as fat, mm-hmm. um, explain the difference in our outcome of health if we're eating excess calories of fat and then just, as you said, just growing healthy fat, or if we're putting it through um, and using insulin to store that fat? Yeah, yeah, that, uh, excellent question. And you're really touching on some very hotly debated topics here. My thought on human obesity is that it is a combination of both a hormone component, namely insulin, and a calorie component, although I don't think we really. I think we invoke the term calorie often incorrectly when it comes to to a living organism. You know, calorie is a purely kind of physical or just in the realm of physics. That's an idea. And I think when you try to apply that to humans, you you we really start missing the mark. Yeah, because you can't you can't you can't um it's like trying to say what energy is uh, yeah. as well. It's this that's that's in, that's right. In, that 
it doesn't exist kind of thing. And, and we are not, the human body is not a perfectly closed system. Mm. We have to account, and, and we are a complex biological organism. You know, for example, we know that protein, if you burn protein in, in, in a chemistry lab, the protein can give off as much energy as burning glucose. That, that's why we assign them the same caloric value. Uh, and and yet, when you consume that protein, you're not getting you're not getting even maybe half of that of actual available energy. Partly, um, it is extremely uh, expensive chemically or biochemically to convert protein into glucose, a usable form of energy. The body does not do that very readily. And second, even just digesting and absorbing protein is an expensive process. That's this thermic effect of food. The body has to really work to move protein in and, and break it down and then use it. So I, I actually, this is a bit of a tangent, I don't think we should even consider protein a calorie uh, it, like we think of it as energy. I think if we, my idea of a nutritional label would look at energy in the context of carbohydrates and fats, although I don't think I think there is reason to scrutinize them, and I'll get to that in a yeah. second because of your question. And then protein would be a separate thing entirely. Don't put it as part of the calorie load because it's really putting protein in the wrong place. Protein is a building block. It's not an energy source. And, and people who want to yeah. claim that it is are just really kind of missing human metabolism. So to your question on, on consuming carbohydrates versus fat, the body can absolutely convert glucose into fat. Um, and we don't even have to just look at glucose. Even we, we shouldn't ignore fructose. Fructose is very readily converted into fat in the liver um, and indeed is a primary source of the liver becoming too fat, comparable to someone drinking too much alcohol. But when someone eats fat, especially if carbohydrates are kept in check, then the body has mechanisms to deal with a little bit of Overconsumption. So, when a person often, when someone starts transitioning to a low carbohydrate or indeed even ketogenic diet, I think it is appropriate to say, at least in their first phase, which could be several months, don't count calories because fat has a satiety. It really does um, through through um, like the hormone ghrelin and cholecystokinin. There are there are fat induced hormones that can that can help with satiety. And second, uh, if insulin is low, two important things are happening that provide a, uh, a metabolic advantage to that low-carb, high-fat state. One, if insulin is low, metabolic rate can be up to almost 300 calories a day higher. And I mean, that's a substantial calorie load. You think, mm. you know, 10% or more of someone's normal resting energy expenditure or normal metabolic rate they can get that 10% bump from just having low insulin. So on one, metabolic rate will be higher um, when insulin is kept low, giving us a little bit of flexibility with calorie balancing in the body. And then two, the body will start making ketones from that fat. And very briefly, and I'm sure your listeners already know this, if insulin is low, the body shifts fuel use. So the body, human metabolism is a hybrid. It's either sugar burning, blood glucose or blood sugar, or it's fat burning. And it's always doing those in some kind of balance. Mm. When insulin is low, the body is in such a state of fat burning 
that it's actually burning more than it needs to meet its, its needs. And some of that extra starts getting shunted into this pathway of ketogenesis. And so the body starts, the liver starts making ketones from all this burned fat. Now that's important to note. One, the ketones can be used for fuel by any cell with mitochondria, especially the brain, which greedily pulls in ketones. But two, we start wasting those ketones. We start urinating them out and we start breathing them out. And that, just think about that though. I don't think enough people appreciate this. When, when we are excreting ketones, that ketone used to be part of a fat molecule. And we always say that the energy, it's con it is consumed, and we have to balance that with what is stored. So it's uh, energy in, in, or what we're exercising out or living out mm. um, through met metabolic rate. But now we're just wasting it. You know, typically we say, well, you have to exercise to waste more or to expend more energy. And that's true. But if you're in ketosis and you're eliminating ketones through your breath and your urine, which you are, then you're wasting energy. I mean, think of that as just little pieces of fat that didn't have to get stored or didn't have to get burned in our muscles when we were working out. We just simply dumped them back into the atmosphere, if you will. Yeah, that, so having um, so many things from that. So the efficiency of when you are in your early stages of fat adaptation, a lot of people do experience high ketones. And then over time, it, that will drop down. And that is just, I guess, you're improving the pathways of using that energy. So there is less wastage um, over time. Yes. So that early stage is when you're saying you don't need to focus so much on calories. But part of that is because you are wasting so much, potentially. I mean, if you check yeah, your ketones right. with a glucometer, you'll have, a, have an idea. Um, yep but then you become more efficient. And I think it's such an evolutionary, you know, masterpiece that yep. as you become more fat adapted, you become more efficient, you waste less energy. And therefore over time, I feel that then your calories will matter a little bit more if you want to maintain that same level of subcutaneous fat. Um, yeah, otherwise you're not wasting as much anymore. And, and I guess you would increase protein at that point it, just to get say satiety um, in your meal. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I, I to absolutely. So when if someone is very overweight, I, I, I generally not that I'm, I'm not a physician and I'm not ever giving dietary advice, but just as a scientist who's looking at this, I would say you know protein would be maybe around twenty percent or something like that, which is still a very good amount of protein. Mm -hmm. But if someone has high glucose, if they're coming into this and they're very diabetic, hyperglycemia, when you eat protein, it can elicit a more substantial effect on insulin secretion from the pancreas if glucose is high. Mm. And so I do think there's a reason to be a little smart about protein um, and not, not go just you know pure chicken breast every day, all day. Um, but that would certainly result in weight loss. There's no question about it. It might just not be sustainable. But uh, yes, as someone starts to get normal glycemia, as their glucose starts to become reasonable, which mind you can happen within just a week or two, frankly, mm. if they're very diligent about it, then I think, yeah, let your protein start to come up um, better. Uh, and, and so getting to the point where it may be around 60% fat uh, of calories, 30% from protein, and then, you know, five to 10 from carbs. Yeah. And so as, as the calories come in, 
as the blood glucose goes up and insulin is secreted, those calories that are there from carbohydrates get stored. And is, but there's still, even if you're healthy, if you're not gaining weight, um, and let's say it's not fructose, I want to ask about fructose later in the liver, but it's just getting stored more as subcutaneous from insulin. Um, mm. Is what's the health difference, the health impact of having high insulin through that calorie intake as opposed to a um, higher fat and protein calorie intake? Tell us about it, yeah, the problems of insulin. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah. So in fact, I, I think the problems with insulin, high insulin are, are so myriad that I, I wrote a book. Yeah, I was um, going to say that the book is, uh, yeah, yeah. Why, we get, why we get sick. And um, yeah, it's every chapter is just a killer point on what insulin is doing. And, you know, we'd be here for 10 minutes just listing every disease. Right. Yeah, I, love yeah, your which, quote. I think one of your quotes from a recent presentation, which was, I think, the low carb down under on the weekend was, of the top, I think, 11 mortality causes in the world, um, insulin directly affects about nine of them. It is a, yeah. a, you know, it's impacting about nine of them. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, Pete, without, without really overstating anything, any non-infectious chronic disease is in some way uh, affected by insulin resistance, where the insulin resistance is either directly causing it or it's making it a lot worse, like in the case of cancers. The insulin resistance might not give rise to the cancer, but it's accelerating the cancer. And so it's just one more variable or one more lever we could control to try to control the disease. Yeah, but hyperinsulinemia, it is very unfortunate that we would only look at insulin in the context of just, just glucose and, and blood sugar control, because insulin does so much more than just control glucose levels. But, but nevertheless, let's just start there. So when, when glucose climbs after someone's eating carbohydrates, if blood glucose stays too high for too long, it starts spilling into the kidneys too much, into the urine, and the person starts producing so much urine that they start running out of blood volume. The blood volume comes down, and so then as volume comes down, blood pressure comes down, and then they can't get enough blood to the brain, and they go unconscious, and they will die if it doesn't get resolved. So my point being, too high glucose for too long is lethal. So thank heavens the body's designed to cope with that very quickly, and that's insulin. So we eat that bagel or that starchy, sugary food. Glucose starts to come up. Insulin is right there to meet it. And insulin basically opens doors into the of certain cells, like certain brain cells, uh, fat cells and muscle cells and skeletal muscle is the main sink for this, you know, up to 80% of it all is going to be pushed into the muscle. But it, 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 by, by opening the doors and pushing the glucose out of the blood into the cells, blood glucose comes down and then insulin's done its job and then it comes down. Now, depending on the person, this process can take two to four hours. You know, insulin can be elevated. You know, you're a very insulin sensitive guy. You're very active. You could eat a bagel. Your insulin could be right back to normal at 60 minutes. It, come, it came up. You're so sensitive to insulin. It worked so well. You come right back down and you're good to go. Someone who's less insulin sensitive or more insulin resistant, and I'll get into some of the causes mm -hmm. in just a moment, the body has a hard time clearing that glucose. They're somewhat 
we, we say that they're glucose intolerant or they're very sensitive to carbohydrates, but that means they're resistant to insulin. And so the insulin has been up now for four hours and then it's finally coming back down. Now the great tragedy in our world, in our carb obsessed environment, and, and we've been told that we need to eat six meals a day, they, a person will spend every waking moment in a state of elevated insulin. So they wake up in the morning, they eat a sugary bowl of cereal and a piece of toast and a glass of orange juice. Oh, that's a huge spike in insulin. And then it's starting to crest and come down. Then two hours later, they have a mid-morning snack because they're kind of hungry again. It bumps back up and it just keeps going all day. Too much insulin can cause insulin resistance. And this has been proven in, in individual cells and in humans you know, Pete, I could have you come into the lab. We could start giving you a slow little infusion of insulin. And within, within 12 hours, we could detect actual insulin resistance in your body because of that, that insulin just won't go away. And that's what people are doing to themselves. And then this insulin resistance starts to affect the brain, giving rise to uh, migraine headaches and seizures and Alzheimer's disease. It, gives, it, it starts to affect the kidneys. And it makes the kidneys start to retain more electrolytes. So it's not letting the salts go out into the urine. And so it's keeping all the salts in and that's keeping the water in. So blood pressure stays high. In fact, if someone has hypertension, it's almost always a result of underlying insulin resistance. And infertility, erectile dysfunction in men due to the effects of insulin resistance on small blood vessels or polycystic ovarian syndrome in women, the most common form of infertility in women. Both of those are, are insulin resistance problems. So, and the list keeps going. Mm. So in the book, as you're um, kind of reading through it, mm. I really wanted to make the book be something that was very readable, that anyone could sit back and enjoy it and, and just get through it easily, but also have it be so substantial that someone could take this to their doctor or indeed a doctor could read it and think to themselves, I need to be measuring insulin resistance you know, before I give this person a medication for their migraine headaches, a medication for their blood pressure, a medication for their diabetes, I will, in fact, take a step back and realize, wait, all three of those problems can be a result of insulin resistance. Let's check for insulin resistance. And if it is insulin resistance, there's no drug on the planet that can match even half, even a fraction of what lifestyle can change. Insulin resistance and all those diseases that come from it are, are caused by diet and they can be cured by diet. And I've recently chatted to, to Dr. Phil Maffetone and Patrick McEwen. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we spoke a lot about the aerobic capacity. And wait, is Patrick McEwen the guy who the did breathing the oxygen? guy? Yep, the oh, oxygen yeah. advantage. Yeah, yeah, I like his book. I got it right here on my shelf. Yeah, brilliant exercises and, and, about getting oxygen into the cells. And so I'm assuming that if a cell is insulin resistant and it's been living only off, car off, off glucose, it's probably not going to have as much oxygen getting in. And that's potentially part of the, the big picture of why people's brain doesn't really work so well, uh, why they get muscle injuries even. So it's sort of they, any injury um, could be linked to some of the flow-on effects of insulin resistance. Yeah, that's a, that is a great question. So I, I do think, uh, I think that part of what you say is accurate, 
but it's not. So insulin resistance will absolutely compromise blood flow. No question. And if in particular, let me just elaborate on that for a second. Um, the, the innermost lining of a blood vessel is this single layer of what's called endothelial cells. And when insulin comes to an endothelial cell, as insulin's flowing through the bloodstream, it will go into that endothelial cell and induce the production of a molecule called nitric oxide, NO. And that will cause these little blood vessels to dilate. And so that will facilitate blood flow. So thinking about a working muscle, for example, or, even, or the brain or any tissue, mm. we think, like, but let's look at the working muscle. When someone is working a muscle, they know the muscle gets pumped. You know, the muscle is swollen, and that's because of this vasodilation. These little capillaries start to expand, and the blood flow through that tissue just gets substantially greater. Insulin mediates some of that effect. However, when the endothelial cells become insulin resistant, insulin is coming in and it's kind of knocking at the endothelial cell, telling it to release nitric oxide to induce the expansion of the blood vessel, but it doesn't happen. And so there, this, this blood flow, this shunting of blood into the tissues that need it, it that is compromised. Mm. Now, I don't believe that has anything to do with oxygen transport. If So you mentioned oxygen transport. Mm. I am unaware of insulin influencing oxygen transport. These gases generally um, have free passage across cell membranes. So oxygen can just come on in, CO2 can come on out. And I'm unaware of insulin having an effect on that. But regardless, what you talked about with perfusion and blood flow, I don't think it's oxygen mediated. Um, it is rather insulin mediated. Now with Patrick and his, his perspective, if I understand it correctly, and you would know more than me, the idea is to um, enhance your your sensitive not uh, to to enhance your capability of dealing with CO two. Yeah, and part of the upside there is this increased activation of the parasympathetic nervous system, and the parasympathetic nervous system facilitates blood flow. There's this vasodilation as opposed to sympathetic nervous system when we're at when we're amped up. Then there's a vasoconstriction generally um, to just speed up blood flow. Mm. So the power of this controlled breathing, like Patrick talks about, and again, I don't claim to know everything that he says, but the idea being you you spend more time in the parasympathetic state, which is this rest state, and and, and that enables vasodilation. Yeah, and and you mentioned the, the nervous system and the, the talk about the impact of if you are ramping up your nervous system regularly, whether it be through um, on purpose, whether it be through very, you know, a stressful high intensity workouts mm -hmm. and releasing hormones that way, or whether it just be emotional stress and people get yeah. very accustomed to living a stressed life and their, their brains working overtime. And, um, and the effect of that on insulin yeah. resistance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and beyond. Yeah. So it is interesting to note the, 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 the similarities between a physio, uh, a, an emotional or psychological stress versus a, a physical st or a physiological stress like exercise, um, because they do have some similarities, namely the release of the stress-related hormones, most especially cortisol and, and the catecholamines, or the main one being epinephrine. So I'll just say that one, um, cortisol and epinephrine. During exercise, there is a... It, 
I guess there's a few points to bring up to compare it with like chronic stress, emotional stress. With exercise, catecholamines and epinephrine, uh, cortisol and epinephrine, one of their main actions is to stimulate the release of glucose from the liver. And so the liver starts spilling all this glucose into the blood. But during exercise, there's a way to deal with that, which is these really greedy, hungry muscles that are pulling in almost all of that glucose. And importantly, during exercise, insulin is extremely low, which means as the glucose is flooding the bloodstream, while the muscle is exercising, it doesn't need insulin to tell it to pull in glucose. It has an insulin-independent way of pulling in glucose, a back door, if you will. So insulin is low, but the muscle still gets all that it wants because the moment a muscle contracts, it can pull in glucose independent of insulin. But because insulin is low, it means the fat cells aren't pulling in the glucose. And so fat cells aren't being fed. They're sharing their fat because insulin is low. They're breaking down fat. And so you have this muscle that's working and it's just swimming in a sea of glucose and fat and it's getting all the energy it needs. And so once the exercise has ended, the stress hormones come down, everything else comes down. And indeed, the body is better prepared to do the same thing next time because it continues to adapt to that stress, which was acute. And that's such an important distinction. In the contrast with emotional stress, that is a chronic stress. These are typically things that don't really go away, certainly not within an hour or two like exercise does. These are stresses that can be activated pretty much every moment, um, asleep or awake. And so now they have high glucose and high, um, uh, sorry, high cortisol and high epinephrine pushing up all the glucose in the body and they're not exercising. And in, so unfortunately they can also have high insulin and they will, as these hormones are pushing up the glucose, insulin has to come up to try to lower the glucose. And then you have this war of hormones. You have insulin trying to lower the glucose, the stress hormones trying to increase the glucose. And so the end result of this vicious cycle is that the body starts to become very insulin resistant as this chronic stress continues. And the high glucose and the high insulin make for fat cells. Um, it, you know, it's, it's like fertilizer for fat cells. Is, is energy um, related to that? So how, let's say if somebody is insulin resistant, the glucose can no longer get where it needs to go, be that in the brain or the muscles. And does that actually make the perception of energy or the ability to do certain things or think sharply become a problem for insulin resistant people who can't access fat at all at any point? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yes, definitely. In the case of the brain, the muscle has enough redundancies to pull in glucose or fats that it typically isn't going to be substantially deficient in, in exercise capacity. Although an insulin resistant muscle cell can become resistant to anabolism. So there's this idea that insulin resistance can is part of the drive of muscle wasting with age or, or sarcopenia. And we have this phenomenon called sarcopenic obesity. So someone has way too much fat tissue, but they don't have the muscles to support it. And that could be a result of the insulin resistance because insulin does tell muscle cells to, to, to maintain protein. So, so that can happen um, with, with insulin resistance at the muscle. Um, and uh, not so much an energy problem, but a, a growth problem. Mm. In the brain, absolutely, you can have an energetic deficiency. And in fact, you can detect this 
in, in almost every, well, of the main brain disorders that I mentioned earlier, seizures, migraines, and Alzheimer's disease. And every one of these, you can, in, in most instances of these diseases, you can detect something called brain glucose hypometabolism. So if you actually are measuring the amount of glucose the brain is pulling in with these disorders, it's less than it should be. And part of that is very likely um, a result of the insulin resistance because insulin helps the brain get glucose. The brain has other mechanisms to get glucose, so it's not totally dependent, but insulin is part of it. And then to your point, if the brain can't, here's the brain's energetic needs and glucose can only give it this much. There's a gap there and there's really one thing that can fill that gap in any any significant amount, and that's ketones. Mm. But if a person has chronic insulin levels, they don't have any ketones, really. And so they're not a lot, they can't make up that energetic gap uh, because the body doesn't shift to fat burning. So they're not making ketones. So the brain just ends up starving. Yeah. Um, earlier on, like right at the start, I had a point when you mentioned ketones and insulin, exogenous ketones. So if let's say you have a high carb breakfast. But then you take your, you know, your, your ketone salts out of a packet. Um, what's going on there? Yeah, yeah. So ketones go right to the front of the queue. You know, when you think of the body of this sort of energetic um, lineup of, of molecules waiting to be burned, metabolically speaking, you know, it's like all these molecules are waiting to board the metabolic bus, you know, and there's this queue of, of molecules waiting to get on and be burned. When you take in ketones, the ketones go right to the front of the line. They go right to the front of the queue. And that means, unfortunately, that all that other nutrient you took in for breakfast, it's got to wait to be burned. You know, so I'm, I'm not at all opposed to exogenous ketones. I think they really can play a good role in human health and certainly human performance. Mm. But it, should be, it shouldn't be used while you're consuming other calories or at least it should be very judicious, especially for the person who's not an athlete. And again, that's just because the ketones will go right to the front of the line and demand to be burned. And it just delays the burning of all the other foods you just ate, which means the body will be more inclined to store it because it doesn't uh, need to burn it. Yeah. And so that brings me to fructose and alcohol and the liver. So fructose you know, I don't understand fully yet because it, everybody keeps saying it goes straight to the liver and it will be stored as fat and you get a very fatty liver and that will mm -hmm. then give you that hormone, hormonogenic effect and, and yeah. perpetuate bad hormones doing the wrong thing. And, um, but it's still, is it still a source of energy quickly, fructose, or is it all just processed and stored as fat? Yeah, what an excellent question. I'm thrilled you brought it up. Uh, yeah, fructose is only metabolized in the liver to any meaningful amount. Uh, so, which which that that's relevant though, because you look at some of the most common sports drinks, and they will have like reverse sugar, which is just fifty fifty glucose and fructose, or they'll have outright sucrose, which is fifty fifty, or high fructose corn syrup, which is more fructose than glucose. The muscles can't use that fructose. So what's the point? Why put it in at all? They put it in because it's sweet. You know, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when Gatorade didn't taste good. I remember, you know, my older brothers would be drinking Gatorade while they were working out and I'd take a little sip and think, ooh, I don't want to drink any more of this. And then 
people wanted to start marketing it to people beyond just elite athletes. And so they had to sweeten it and fructose is sweet. So now there's fructose in there, but the muscles don't use that. So when people say fructose is quick energy, it only is in the case where it, to the degree that the liver will convert some of that fructose into glucose and then share that glucose with the body. And that can happen. And then the glucose can just be burned as glucose. But because the liver is really the only tissue that has the enzymes to break down the fructose, it has to really bear this burden of, of handling the fructose. And fructose can go, well, one of two ways. It either can be sent out of the liver in the form of glucose, or it will be stored as fat. And if insulin is low, fructose can be released as glucose. That doesn't mean it's benign, but if insulin is high, virtually every speck of that fructose is going to be converted into fat. And the liver will make palmitate the most prominent saturated fat and will store it and will spill it out into the body. Right, because the liver is doing an incredible amount of jobs in the human body, isn't it? It's it's regulating insulin at the same time as converting energy and storing. And is that is that yeah. right? <laughs> so oh, we- absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, in fact, if you look at the organs of the body, um, in the context of of human energy or human metabolism, the liver is right at the middle. It really is this keystone holding the whole thing together. It's 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 kind of orchestrating everything. It's constantly sensing. What are the needs of the body? And it's responding to signals, most, most especially hormones. What is insulin telling it to do? What is glucagon or, or cortisol or epinephrine telling it to do? It's constantly um, sort of uh, sampling or, or receiving all of these signals. And it does the job. It makes sure that the body, energetically speaking, gets what it needs. Not to mention all the other proteins that it produces with regards to blood clotting and, and other signals to other tissues, other hormones telling the body, other tissues what to do. But I mean, the liver is really one of the unsung heroes. You know, I think it's kind of, I joke about this. In fact, I joke about it in the book where in, in, in this sort of English um, side of the world or the English speaking part of the world, we always refer to a, a dear one as a sweetheart, you know, you're my sweetheart. But in Persian cultures, a term of endearment is referring to someone as a golden liver, like, ah, oh, you're my golden liver. And I think that's a little more accurate because the liver does a hell of a lot more than the heart does. Not that the heart's not important. We need it. Mm. But boy, the liver does everything yeah. else except beat blood, basically. Yeah. But, but one thing it doesn't do is it, it doesn't accumulate toxins. So that's why liver is such a good thing to eat. Um, the misconception among some people is that it, it stores toxins. So if you eat it, you're going to get all the... Yeah. Yeah. And that, that is not true. And it is what part of the magic of, of animal sourced foods. Animal so- animals, humans included, have ways of, of excreting and, and just removing some of these molecules from the diet. And, and that, that matters. I agree wholeheartedly. Liver is an extraordinarily nutritious food. Um, and I, no one should avoid it for any reason. There's no good reason to avoid eating liver. Um, and I get that the taste can be a little off-putting, but yeah. boy, uh, find a way to put it in yeah. a diet. Yeah, um, it's, it's perfectly clean. Yeah, so so back to fructose, though. I mean, so, some people, a lot of people, I guess, will still experience a higher blood sugar after eating fruit. Um, yes. And particularly fruit juice, I guess, as well. Um, so, oh, yeah. So there must still be quite 
quite a few pathways that are still putting the fructose into the into the blood still. Yeah, and that is through the liver. And when you drink that much fructose at one time, you end up just essentially pushing fructose in both directions. You're going to get a lot of glucose from that, and you're going to get a lot of fat from that. But it is just such, it's one, I mean, anyone listening to this, I would just tell them strongly, don't drink fruit juice. Mm. You know, God made these fruits to be chewed and swallowed and even, but then man has made them far different, you know, than, than our early ancestors ever had. We have bred these things to be little sugar bombs, but even still eat the fruit, don't drink it. When you have stripped out the fiber and concentrated all that fructose, that is just a, a biochemical bomb to the liver. And, and the liver, bless its, bless its heart, I mean, it, it does a good job with what it can. But yeah, you, you basically load both systems, making fat and dumping glucose into the blood. What would be the amount? I mean, is it? It's only about two tablespoons of sugar in our whole blood. Is that right? So, how much? Yeah. How much do you think a let's say a healthy liver that is not going to have a? It's not going to become um, storing that fat as visceral fat. It's more likely just to store it in a healthy way. Is that is that mm -hmm. possible that the liver can just store subcutaneous fat? And what sort of amounts are we talking about without overloading the liver? to you know make it an yeah. unhealthy fatty liver yeah at one, at that's, one that's, time that's a great question i don't know what the load is that the liver optimally handles of, of of fructose i would say at the risk of kind of copping out i'd say as little as possible mm. now interestingly you're mentioning visceral fat and subcutaneous fat the liver if you if you look at blood flow blood flow will go from the intestines to the liver. And so the liver sees all that fructose. Well, mind you, anything that gets absorbed from the intestines goes right into the liver. The liver is the first site of handling all this energy that comes in, um, with the exception of long chain fats, which, which gets absorbed through the lymph and so doesn't immediately pass through the liver. But everything else, including fructose, goes right to the liver. Then as you follow the blood flow, the next depot is through um, it, it can potentially get through some fat tissue through the visceral space as it's making its way into the aorta or to the vena cava and then back to the heart. So when we look at visceral fat, likely much of the source of visceral fat could be coming from fat that the liver is making. And so that's why fructose is so um, is such a damaging molecule because it's increasing not only the fat within the liver itself, but also within that visceral space, it's all surrounding all the internal organs in the abdomen. And the body has a very limited capacity to store fat there. It's not a place the body wants to store too much fat. Mm. And, and we touched on before, once it's stored there, it, it has a greater influence on that storage in the future and the other hormones that are secreted that are going to basically make people unhealthier because yeah. of the... It becomes its own organ, doesn't it, kind of thing, the way that it secretes hormones. Yeah, yeah. you mean the visceral fat tissue? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. In fact, the main hormones being these what's called cytokines, these pro-inflammatory hormones or just proteins, mm. but we, we could use that term interchangeably. Yeah, so visceral fat, you know, gram for gram is going to be releasing much more inflammatory proteins than subcutaneous fat is, and it will be releasing less 
of the beneficial hormones. You know, subcutaneous fat is readily releasing hormones like leptin and adiponectin, and those are universally good for human metabolism and other processes, even like fertility. Visceral fat cells don't. They're, they're very low when it comes to secreting those beneficial hormones, and in contrast, are secreting much higher levels of the negative pro-inflammatory proteins. Yeah. Um, so if we just have regular sugar, let's say um, we're just having starchy, starchy sugars, um, mm -hmm. potatoes, and yeah. um, I'm trying to think of some other sweet things. I don't eat any sweet things. So um, wherever the sweet foods are coming from that aren't containing fructose, um, and well, I could be but, but totally wrong, potatoes, happen. potatoes yeah, always so have fructose, do they as well? No, 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 no. So uh, you might be just interchanging some of the terms. If something mm. tastes sweet, mm. it's because it has fructose in it. Yeah. Whatever okay. it is. Now, a potato is like pure starch. So no, no fructose, just pure, like a glucose polymer. It's just glucose linked to glucose linked to glucose. So that's why a potato won't be sweet, yeah. but it can still have a substantial effect on, on glucose levels. So if it's okay. sweet, it's because it has fructose. Yeah, okay. Um, and... This may not be. This may be totally wrong. But if we're eating these calories, as we say, and a calorie of of fructose is more likely to get stored as fat, is it staying at the exact same calorie density, or uh, in, in a way, is a, is a fructose turning into a fat molecule, which is worth nine? Mm -hmm. One gram is nine calories in a fat, mm -hmm. and one mm -hmm. gram of sugar is four point five or something either um yeah yeah uh calories in one gram of of sugar mm -hmm. um so are we taking the equivalent amount of calories to store as fat so basically taking two fructose yeah. to store as one excellent fat? question or, or does it just are we are we producing other hormones that just beef it up and so we yeah. get one calorie turning into nine calories oh. yeah no yes yeah, so that's a that's an excellent question i've never been asked that before um, yeah, so you would need multiple fructose molecules or glucose molecules in order to get to palmitate. Um, so, so essentially, we, we end up taking um, two molecules from, from glucose at a time. So if glucose and fructose, they each have six carbons, we would take those six carbons. Mind you, we lose a little bit of the carbon dioxide in the process, though, so it's not perfect. We, don't, we aren't able to... In fact, I like this question because it gets to the heart of human metabolism and biochemistry in general, which is track the carbons. That's how we can really determine the efficiency of storing or burning something. Because when we're burning something, that carbons are being released as CO2. Literally, we're breathing off the CO2. And that comes from us burning nutrients for energy. Or we take those carbons from the glucose or fructose and we start linking them together in a different way to make palmitate, the 16 carbon fat that the liver makes when it's making mm -hmm. fat. So if glucose and fructose, if um, I, I ought to, I, you know, if I, I should have written all this out ahead of time, but, but roughly speaking, we're probably gonna need something like, uh, like four molecules of glucose or fructose in order to convert that into, the, uh, into a fat. And, yeah. and, and so I, that, that, that means there, there's some inefficiencies there. Mm. We're losing some carbons through carbon dioxide production. But I guess that's why when you combine the 
sugar in your meal with the protein, that protein can, I guess, fill in those gaps very quickly and readily to produce that molecule of palmitate more easily, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. perhaps than you know if it's a if it's a different if it's just protein and you haven't got that insulin effect, it's not it's not in its kind of building fat storage mode. So oh, it's yeah. not it's not taking the protein to fill in those gaps. It's more taking no. the it's taking the amino acids to do the cell repair and cell regeneration. Yep. And that's, that's, right. that's something you mentioned in your book is um, aging is basically cell regeneration um, as it slows down. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So one way of looking at aging is how capable is the cell uh, at, at replicating when needed and then e- independent of replicating itself, how capable is the cell at cleaning house? You know, as, as, as the mitochondria, for example, is starting to get old or any part of the cell, the cell has multiple components to it to, to help it function. How capable is the cell at breaking down the old stuff and building up something new to replace it? And that's a process called autophagy, which is pretty hard to measure. It's despite all the obsession with talking about autophagy, it's really difficult to, you know, really measure autophagy in a person. Um, but insulin even once again becomes relevant and has a strong effect on on dampening autophagy. So if people look at autophagy as a key to longevity, and I think there's reason to do that, people are, it's funny though, Pete, not to get this off topic, but people look at longevity through the lens of autophagy. And so many people are saying, eat less protein because protein activates this process of this protein called, eating protein activates something called mTOR, and mTOR will slow down autophagy, and that's why you'll age faster. But if you look, if you're looking at longevity through the lens of mTOR because of what mTOR does to autophagy, all the more reason to fear insulin, because insulin activates mTOR way more than any amino acids activate mTOR to slow autophagy. So if you want to keep autophagy active, and again, I get it. There's reason. There's evidence to suggest that's a good way. It's a good strategy to help yourself age well, then control the insulin. Don't worry about the protein. Mm. Eat the protein. You need it. In fact, we know in humans that as we age, the people that eat the least amount of protein have the highest frailty and mortality. So we got to eat more protein, age well, keep your insulin in control by controlling carbohydrates, and then prioritize protein and fill the rest of your calories with fat um, then you've 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 gotten true nutrition from the protein and the fat, and you're keeping insulin in control because those have the least effect on insulin. Yeah, um, and so our next question is about fats. Um, mm-hmm. The different types of fat you've talked about in, in another podcast I heard um, will be metabolized differently, and some will be more readily available in the bloodstream, and some will be stored more easily. Um, so just Tell us about that, and then I'll, I'll ask a follow-up. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Yeah, so in general, the longer the fat, in general, the longer the fat, the more, the more easily the body will store it. So what that means is if we look at short-chain fats, like from fermented foods or apple cider vinegar, those really short-chain fats, there's no capacity to store them. When they make it into the bloodstream, they just get burned. There's no alternative. Oh, and and converted into ketones as well, frankly. Um, Second, if we go a little longer to the medium chain fats, 
Those also don't, they have an extremely limited capacity for storage. So they'll also get burned immediately, either burned for energy or burned for ketone production. And then we've taken care of them. Then we get to the long chain fats and then they have a much greater capacity to be stored, but still burned, of course. Mm. The body still very readily will burn long chain fats. And in fact, it, it gets a little interesting uh, because when we look at the long chain fats, we have saturated fats, we have monounsaturated, like olive, olive oil, the olive oil fat, oleic acid. Then we have the polyunsaturated long chain fats. The polyunsaturated long chain fats have a higher oxidative um, priority, if you will. They will be burned more than, than, say, palmitate, the most prevalent of the saturated fats. So these long chain polyunsaturated fats will get burned more. And then you'll have oleic acid, 18-1, the monounsaturated fat. It'll get burned. And then you'll burn the saturated fats like palmitate and stearate, stearate like from dark chocolate, for example. So you're um, going to, when you say burn, though, it, it's, I guess it's relative to what you're doing, right? Because oh, if, yeah. you have, if you're sitting there eating these um, short chain and, or any of these fats and they do end up yeah. in your bloodstream, first of all, when you talk about, oh, it will be burned and, and turned into ketones, that's not going to happen if you're insulin resistant and haven't burnt fat since you were born, I assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an excellent question. So if someone is, is hyperinsulinemic because of their insulin resistance, they, they pr I've not ever seen this quantified, so I love that you're asking this question. I will speculate and say the ketogenic capacity from the, the ketogenic effect from eating short chain fats will very likely be less than in someone who has low insulin mm. levels. Because if insulin is high, it abhors, it inhibits ketogenesis very, very well. Um, mm. Insulin has a very abusive relationship with ketogenesis. And the moment insulin goes up, it smashes down the brakes of ketogenesis. So it very, very likely, mm. and again, I've never seen the data for this, but I'm very confident in speculating high insulin will prevent the ketogenic shift of the, of the short-chain fat. And so then the question is, well, then what does the body do with the short-chain fat? Mm. It, probably, it probably has to burn it in the liver to some capacity, but it'll take the place of burning anything else. I'm not sure, though. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned apple cider vinegar, and yeah. I've heard you mention the benefits of apple cider vinegar for helping keep blood sugar lower during yeah. a during a meal or after a meal mm -hmm. or, or maybe mm -hmm. even in the hours after a meal yeah um and then you mentioned that it has short chain fatty acids in it yeah i mean if you look on the back of the label i'm pretty sure it's I not going to say that it would contain any fat in fact it says nothing but yeah that's that's one of the great yeah so so first of all there are very clear data in humans that you give a type 2 diabetic two tablespoons of vinegar you know in water and, and they will eat a meal, there is a substantial reduction in blood glucose and blood insulin um, as a result of that apple cider vinegar. So there's a very real effect there that I think is so easy that anyone should be doing it because it's such an easy thing to do. It takes a little bit of adjustment getting used to the flavor of the can, apple cider vinegar. Can you speculate why that does that? Uh, you know, I don't know, actually. <laughs> Um, I, I, perhaps it's due to the mitochondrial boost. Uh, we know that, that short-chain fats do um, enhance mitochondrial function through a few different mechanisms. Maybe it's that. Um, but 
And so how does it yeah. work as fat? How, how is yeah, right. yeah. apple so, cider so vinegar it, a fat? Yeah, so vinegar itself is the shortest of the fats. It is, in fact, just a two-carbon fat. Earlier we were talking about palmitate, which is a 16-carbon fat. Acetic acid is just the shortest version of all of those. But it is a short-chain fat. I just I, I can only imagine that when you're drinking vinegar, in the actual solution of vinegar, like the strongest vinegars are like a 10% vinegar. You know, so it's it's 10%, it's one part vinegar into nine parts water. And so there's so little actual caloric relevance to that that there's just nothing to even measure there. But you, but but it doesn't change the fact that vinegar is itself that molecule acetic acid that we call vinegar that is a short chain fat is that likely to upset or, or lower stomach acids at all before a meal i don't know you don't think so and so i, I don't know I, I don't think one way or the other that is a good question and i just have never looked into it is is sodium bicarb um the same as vinegar does no, it do the same no. thing no no, no. In fact, it's kind of vinegar. It's it's like an opposite. So mm. sodium bicarbonate is a buffering agent. So it would take, like literally, if you mix the two, it takes the vinegar and negates the the acidifying effect of the vinegar by binding it to itself. You get and the then fizz. It creates, and it creates CO2. Mm. So it basically takes that acidifying capacity of the vinegar, negates it, and then creates CO2 from it, which is why you get the little volcano explosion. Um, and and which is why if someone ingests bicarbonate, they well one they could upset their stomach to the point of having to vomit because mm. it is so disruptive to the acid in the stomach. But relevant to athletics, and this is shown if someone can tolerate the bicarbonate, they can have a higher anaerobic output, albeit briefly, because part of the part of the um, fatigue that comes with a high intensity interval is due to the acute acidifying of the muscle. The muscle is burning ATP. It's, 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 it's breaking down ATP at such a rapid rate. And ATP is the molecule that gives that, that the cell can use to do what it needs to do. Like when we think of a muscle contracting and relaxing, ATP is the main molecule that lets that happen. The muscle is burning through so much ATP that it actually is, every time it breaks apart an ATP, it gets a hydrogen molecule. And that hydrogen molecule starts to affect the pH and it fatigues the muscle. It has nothing to do with lactate, which is a common myth. It has very likely everything to do with ATP breakdown. But if someone can tolerate, if they can acutely increase their bicarbonate levels in their blood because they've ingested mm. baking soda, and I'm not suggesting anyone do this, they very likely will vomit. It can be dangerous, so don't do it. But in very well-controlled laboratory settings, there's evidence to suggest that it can, in fact, enhance someone's anaerobic capacity, get a yeah, little that, more out of a sprint. That, that, that research was done in, with very expensive tablets that cost about 4 or $5 each. And you know, in a, it was made in a tablet and in a way that it got low enough into the intestine that it didn't cause mm -hmm. the vomiting. And they had to have quite a lot. I think it was several or 15 tablets. And oh. um, so it was an expensive way that would just wouldn't yeah. be, no. I don't think many people are going to start to do that. No, and, and moreover, I mean, it, I can't imagine an athlete, like I can't imagine a triathlete even trying that because it's far more likely they're going to vomit or, or have wicked diarrhea 
than mm. they would ever get some actual athletic benefit from. So I would say it's not at all worth trying. Yeah. And, and so for, for very low carb, um, fat adapted athletes such as myself during a race is a tiny bit of apple cider vinegar, you know, mixed in with that little bit of sugar. Um, let's say we just use something like a dextrose or a maltodextrin. Is that potentially going to just, I don't know. Do, oh, do I think it would be helpful. Yeah. In fact, I wish I could remember his name. There is an, uh, this guy won some Ironman in his age group I think he's a German guy, and and I think his his little packets that he was taking was just electrolytes and apple cider vinegar. I gotta find his name. I wish I would have looked it up ahead of time, yeah. but that's exactly yeah. what he does for his kind of in race one of his at least in race mm. um, and, supplements. And and you wouldn't really try to digest any other fats though, other than like. Apple cider vinegar, very short chain. You wouldn't try and add, you know, say coconut oil to your drink bottle to have during the race, would you? You'd be better off just taking the ketones and drinking ketone salts, I assume. Yeah, that is a great question. I I I will be careful in in just saying I, I it's hard for me. I don't know. I mean, you guys are such machines, so it's hard for me to really know. I would say if a person can take the coconut oil and they feel fine. Taking it doesn't make, doesn't upset their stomach. It's not really mm. um, dis- distracting them because of the mouth feel of it all. Then I'd say take it. Um, it is energy, and if you're if you can if you're feeling fine taking it in, it's not upsetting your. Well, let's say you know, MCT oil, which is going to be converted to ketones a bit yep. more easily. But why not just skip that whole process and drink I the agree. ketones, and then yes, you're not yes. having to digest anything? Is that that's right. Yep. I think that's a very fair point. Yep. If yeah. you're taking the MCT to get to the ketone, just take the ketone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then you don't risk having any upset stomach and, and yep. any of those sort of issues. That's um, right. Yeah. Fewer digestive issues. Yeah. Because MCT can be wicked on your guts. Yeah. Um, so I want to ask quite a lot now about kidneys because, you know, with, with myself and um, other low carb um, clients that I've got that are, that are really fat adapted, um, but maybe they've gone to low carb like I have because of previous other health issues, insulin resistance in the past. So we may not be like the perfect specimens, um, but we're pretty good. But we still might get, you know, urination during the night, um, mm-hmm. trying to figure out more salt, less salt. Um, and there was something in your book, I think it was about the, the, all the roles that the kidney is doing. And so my question is, when your insulin is high and you're insulin resistant um, and you are eating a high carbohydrate diet, um, we've all been told and warned, and it does happen, that we then lose a lot of electrolytes in that first couple of weeks when we go low carb. Yeah. Um, And then we're told to have heaps of salt, which I did. Um, but then I don't need as much salt anymore. And actually, if I if I have too much salt, then I'm up during the night weaning. So I've mm-hmm. I've solved the wee problem by dropping my salt. Um, so yeah, obviously insulin resistance is affecting the kidneys, salt retention, blood plasma volume, all yeah. of that stuff. So oh, <laughs> very powerfully. Just tell us about kidneys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the kidneys are extremely responsive to insulin. And there's there's kind of two things to say here. One, the kidneys need insulin, and they need insulin in order to work properly. If if the kidneys if 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 the kidneys become insulin resistant, then well, 
it's it's kind of all hell starts to break loose in the kidneys. One, they can start to become leaky to protein, so so they can develop actual um, what's called glomerular disorders or glomerulopathy. That's a mouthful, but essentially the part of the kidney that is filtering the blood can start to break down, and and it becomes leaky to protein, but nothing else. Oddly enough, so that's the kind of other side of the kidneys. If insulin is high, it is activating a series of events that is preventing the kidneys from filtering out electrolytes and just metabolites in general that it's supposed to. The kidney's supposed to be filtering molecules out. It is part of the purification, the liver and the kidneys. And if insulin is chronically high, it's preventing the kidneys from dumping these metabolites out. And if it can't spill these metabolites into the urine, then it can't pull the water out into the urine. And so the body is chronically overflowing with water. So it's because it can't urinate it out. And so that's why a person who's insulin resistant will always have some degree of hypertension. Then in contrast, if someone has low insulin, they're very readily filtering their blood. That's a good thing, but it also means they're going to have to urinate. Probably they're going to be urinating more often than they used to, just because the body, when they're drinking water, the body can filter the blood very readily, and that extra water will be passed very quickly into the urine. And do you think that then if that that's related to different salt intake levels as well? Oh, most certainly, yeah. So when someone eats salt, there is an acute um, effect to hold water in, and then give the body a few hours, and it'll typically regulate that out. It'll get rid of the extra salt and the and the water with it, and then blood volume will come back down. But without a doubt, even in an insulin sensitive person, there will be an acute increase in blood volume from consuming salt. And if that's supposed to happen, it's normal. We have to dilute the blood a little bit to compensate for those extra electrolytes. Yeah. And so that's why if somebody does go on like the, a two week test type, you know, get rid of carbohydrates and then see how you, how you go when you reintroduce them is what Phil Maffetone's started decades ago and, and the way Jamie and I approach our clients, that's why water weight, like you, you will drop quite a lot. If you can just drop your, your standard insulin level, um, you're going to stop holding that water then because your, your body's going to balance it out and your kidneys, yep, yep. Your kidney, because your kidneys will start working properly, I guess. Yep. Well said. Yeah. So without a doubt, some of the substantial weight loss that someone sees very quickly in the first week of, of low carb is very much going to be a water loss, but that's not a bad thing. It's almost, like you said, it's just like the body's getting to where it should have been the whole time. And then any ongoing weight loss is going to be fat loss. Yeah. And then urea and the kidneys. I mean, um, some people, I guess, because of our, the way that our world is now, all of our standard measurements for what is optimal or what the doctors think the range that we should be in is kind of based off a, an unhealthy population. Um, and so urea levels in somebody who is low carb and eating plenty of protein, they can sometimes start to worry a little bit if they see that number creep up a little bit and the doctor says, oh, your, your kidneys may not be functioning well. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, so urea is an indicator of, well, two things. How much protein is being broken down in the body to be used for, for gluconeogenesis? And then second, uh, how well the kidneys are working filtering that urea. So that is really what urea is, a sign of 
how much urea is being produced through protein breakdown, and then how much urea is being excreted into the urine. And so in that sense, it is an indicator of how the kidneys are working. <clears throat> if someone is going low carb and they have a lot of urea, I would say that is likely not evidence of kidney dysfunction. It could be evidence that they aren't eating enough fat and that if they aren't eating enough fat, they are in fact relying more on protein for gluconeogenesis. And so they are getting more urea produced. I would say that it might be that might be an impetus or it might be justification for shifting the macros a bit and saying or acknowledging my body's burning too much protein. Um, I, I don't want to be burning protein. I want to be building stuff out of the protein. So I need to shift my macros a little bit to get more energy from fat. Yeah. And that brings me to what I, what I heard you talk about your, um, the way that you eat and the way that you think most people generally should eat and, and our requirements, I guess. And so if we're talking about protein requirements, the standard is, well, if you're getting 30 grams of protein, um, three times a day, you're going to hit your enough protein for um, protein synthesis, for cell rebuilding. Mm -hmm. So, and once you are fat adapted and you're using your own fat for energy, there's, there's not really any energy requirements um, each day. And mm -hmm. the only requirement then is that we are getting the vitamins and minerals we need. So if protein can be covered with, let's say, you know, a few hundred grams to half a kilo of, of, of meat, Mm -hmm. or, fi or fish or from eggs um, and we're using our own fat and it's comfortable as a low carb person. And, and you've spoken about this, that you can really just go most of the day without getting any hunger pains and your brain is sharp. So you don't get a hormonal craving for food. So mm -hmm. you can, you can go without food for a while. So we're back to why are we eating and, and to eat enough, but not too much that maybe yeah. we are having this urea excretion or we are just storing fat, even though it's healthy fat, we still might be storing it. Um, I guess our, our requirements are fairly, fairly low. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree wholeheartedly. Once someone is able to <clears throat> burn fat well or become fat adapted, as you said, then it does give us a different perspective on body fat. All of a sudden, when if we're a little overweight or even lean and we're going on a like here and here in Utah, we have beautiful mountains, um, you know, right outside off campus, right off campus here. We could go hiking in the mountain and, and I'll see people going up to hike up the mountain and they're very overweight and they've got a Gatorade bottle and in two energy bars or something. How unfortunate. I mean, that is what that fat tissue is for. That fat tissue is really just a bunch of energy bars strapped onto our bodies just waiting to be used, but because they, their insulin is chronically elevated, they can never use it. Mm. And so then they, they feel hungry. And so they do take in energy because they feel like they need it. When you're fat adapted, all of a sudden your fat cells become this, this kind of open doors. Fat can come in and fat can come out and we can use that fat perfectly well. And so we don't sense that energetic gap and we won't get as hungry. But, uh, so if we are fat adapted, fasting, the absence of consuming any calorie, suddenly becomes much simpler, much easier to do. Uh, we, can, we can go a day or two or you know, whatever, and we are using our own energy, our own fat for energy perfectly well. And then our energetic needs 
or, or our dietary needs do in fact become, well, different. Uh, we don't have to worry about calories. <clears throat> and depending on the length of the fast, we don't have to worry about anything except water and electrolytes. Um, and we don't, there's no vitamins to be worried about really, especially over just a couple days. There's mm -hmm. no reason to fear anything. As a fast gets longer, um, then you, you do start, to, probably there's some justification for supplements with, with vitamins and, and certainly minerals still like electrolytes. Uh, but, but the body becomes, <clears throat> one of my fears of fasting as a, as a really lean guy, I have to work really hard to, to get any little ounce of muscle that I have on my body. <clears throat> one of the fears is oh, I'm gonna get even scrawnier than I am. But that just doesn't really happen. Um, the body starts to protect muscle very, very well, as long as there is fat to burn. If someone, that's the difference between fasting and starvation. Fasting is a fast until you start running out of fat. The moment you start running out of fat, then you start burning muscle. That is now starvation. So that's why you can have someone who's morbidly obese and they could fast for months. I mean, if they're smart about their vitamins and minerals, it's not a starvation and they're preserving their muscle mass because the fat tissue is being broken down into ketones and it's feeding the brain everything that it needs. But once you start to run out of fat, you start to run out of ketones, and now the brain can only get its energy from glucose. And the biggest source of glucose at that point is all the carbons stored as protein in the muscle. So now it's got to break down that muscle protein to convert it to glucose to feed the brain. But as long as we have fat, and that's then we can spare that. And that's why people say ketones are muscle sparing, because if you have ketones, the, the protein can stay in the muscle. The moment you start running out of ketones because you're running out of fat, now the muscle, the body needs that carbon in the form of the protein from the muscle, and they'll start stripping it out. Last question, because you've got to get going shortly. Um, your own um, routines with food, um, and you have said that you do believe that most people, to improve insulin sensitivity, to, to get rid of some insulin resistance, once you become fat adapted, two meals a day is is great mm -hmm. because just less less moments throughout the day of spiking insulin is going to make you more insulin um, sensitive. Oh, yeah. Sensitive, yep. And and your type of food that you think is best, and and you've gone as far as creating a product with your brothers, which is which is awesome, um, yeah. to try to get this across to people in a way that um, you know they they can get a good balance of food you know, for when they're, when they're rushing and, and can't get real food. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I am absolutely an advocate of real food. Uh, one, so, so thanks for mentioning it. So two of my older brothers, Sam and Joel, when, when they were getting curious about low carb, they started to encounter this very real hurdle, which is when you start to transition to a low carb diet, the good and the bad of it is you have to eat real food. Because processed, easily accessible packaged foods are always high carb and high fat. That's not a that's that's a terrible mix. You don't want to eat that stuff. And so the the justification for my brothers and I wondering could we do this uh, could we do this better? It really was this idea of providing something nutritious that met um, really the ideal goals of a low carb diet, um, being smart about carbohydrates, and then really providing the best proteins and the best fats into one meal 
and, and so that, that's the idea of the shake. And anyone who's curious about it, please go to this website, Get Health, and that's Get G-E-T, then Health is spelled in a funny way, H-L-T-H, Get Health, H-L-T-H.com, and you can learn more about it. But yeah, the idea for the shake is to make it easy. Um, but when someone is planning a meal, to me, the most nutritious foods are eggs and red meat. If someone's getting eggs and red meat, it's it, they're going to get everything they need. That is nutritious. Uh, the most nutritious, most nourishing foods you can get. And because it's protein and fat, uh, you're going to have a minimal effect on insulin. So you stay insulin sensitive. That is unreal. And um, yeah, thanks so much for your time. Cause I know we've hit you, hit your time. And yeah. um, you know, I, um, the, the whole, uh, people being scared of, of protein and fat um, for cholesterol and um, hardening, oh. their, hardening their arteries. It, it's, the research is coming out again and again. Every, every kind of week, there's another you know, analysis and, of the old studies coming out showing and disproving. Um, yep. What's your thoughts on where that's going and where we're at? Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'm thrilled you brought this up. Okay. The day is coming. I really do believe the day is coming when the myth surrounding saturated fat will will be will be destroyed. The idea that saturated fat is this this demonic molecule in our diets that we should avoid is is ridiculous. I think it has caused far more harm than than any good. We have to eat fat in the diet, and by by vilifying saturated fat, which is a natural fat. The fats that we get from animal sources and fruit sources like coconuts, avocados, olives, those all have saturated fat in them. When we started shunning those natural ancestral fats, it only left all these fake fats from soybean oil and corn oil. And man, humans were never meant to eat those. That is not a part of, that is not a natural fat. My, uh, so It didn't even exist. No, no, that's right. That's right. And we can track this. The soybean oil in particular went from nothing until about 60 years ago. It spiked and is now the single most commonly consumed fat in the human diet. I mean, let that sink in. People are afraid of red meat because of the fat. No, we eat more of our fat from soybean oil than any other fat source in the diet. And, and that's, that is, those are bad fats. People want to talk about hardening the arteries due to plaque formation. It's those fats that are facilitating plaque formation. In fact, the saturated fats are the most stable. Those do not become these, these um, lip, what's called lipid peroxides to, to initiate the growth of a plaque. It's, the, it's these seed oil fats that will, get, that, will become, that will be converted into these harmful molecules and just start really laying the groundwork for a plaque to form in the blood vessel. So my sentiment on fat is eat it, and focus on real sources, ancestral sources that we as humans have been eating since the beginning of time, animal fat and fruit fat. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much um, for your time, uh, Ben. It's been amazing. Um, and yes, yeah, so much, so much for our listeners My to pleasure. think about. My pleasure. I, I appreciate the time, Pete. It was a pleasure talking with you. I really admire your physical feats and I'm happy <laughs> to have been speaking everything human metabolism with you. This was great. Yeah, it's it's awesome, and I'm definitely going to start chucking some apple cider vinegar in my drink bottles yeah, when exactly. I'm out riding now. Um, for the in fact, I'll be fat. curious. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, 
So thank you so much and, yeah, all the best um, and all the best with the book. It's only just come out, so um, people should get their hands on um, why we get sick and, um, yeah, because it's a great read and anybody with any, literally any health issue, there's a, there's a top, there's a um, chapter or a, yeah. a subject in here about why insulin resistance affects that. Um, so, yeah, it's a great book for great. anybody with any health issue. Well, I appreciate the plug. Thanks again, Pete. This was great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. See ya. How good was that? One of the nicest, smartest guys that I've ever spoken to. And it was an absolute pleasure. I hope you all enjoyed it too. And I hope you now go out and find that book online. You probably aren't going out much at all these days uh, with the restrictions that some of us have. But find it online. It's come out just recently in July. So it's a great new read and there's so much new information and it's going to be at the forefront of what's coming. And like he said, definitely something you should be able to take to your doctor and say, hey, here's this book. I want you to read up because these are the symptoms I'm having and this is the process that I want to go through with you as my doctor. So that's fantastic. Thanks so much to Ben for coming on. And Jamie and I have also recently released something. It's our subscription for Fit and Strong, our classes a couple of times a week, our recovery session a third time, and a cooking class on a fourth day, and some bonus material as well as our backlog of videos. So it's live Zoom sessions that you can join us with where we're filming at home. And at the moment, the past ones have all been body weight. We're going to move into incorporating some weights, just dumbbells, kettlebells, fit balls, whatever people can find and get their hands on. And so we'd love for you to look at our website and check out that subscription membership. It's going to be exciting. The more people we have on board, the more fun it will be. And we're having fun already. And it's uh, just been Jamie and I testing it out and trialing the process. So that's up and running. So check it out online. And we look forward to getting in touch with you through our membership program. And uh, yeah, seeing you on Zoom for some sessions shortly. Thanks again for joining us on the podcast and look forward to hearing from you.